Coming up on the Keto Camp Podcast, we welcome back for the third time, Dr. Don Klump. Your food is not fuel. I really don't like it when people say that because it's misleading. It's not fuel, it's information. Your, your gut is on the outside of your body, if you think about it, tube going down through your body on the way out. It's all on the outside. And your food tells your body, where are you? Where you are? Am I, am I in the north or the south? Is it, what, what time of year is it? What, what's the conditions of my environment, right? Well, what's, what's growing? What season is it? What's the earth like? But, so your body's interpreting all that. And when you throw in a processed food from a powder or, or otherwise, I think it just does, it goes like, what the heck is this? Why are you eating this? We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp Podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, Ben Azadi here, the host of the Keto Camp Podcast from benazadi.com. I'm excited to bring back for the three-peats Dr. Don Klum. Dr. Don Klum, if you remember, has been on the Keto Camp Podcast, episode 145, where we talked about insulin resistance being at the root cause of COVID-19 issues, how to improve immune function with vitamin D, the role of fasting and exercise, and then he was on episode nine, one of our first 10 episodes, where he talked about his 30-day fast and how that actually helped him shed cancerous tags on his body and cancer moles on his body. We also talked about insulin and weight gain, diabetes, the inverted relationship between vitamin D and insulin, and other topics. So if you want to listen to those two interviews, we'll link it in the notes of this podcast. And when this one's done, you could go and listen to the other ones. Dr. Don Klum is one of the most brilliant people in the health space. I truly believe it. Now, he might not be the most popular guy in the health space, meaning people don't know him as much as Dr. Jason Fong or Dave Asprey or Ben Greenfield, etc. But he's right up there at the top with his brilliance and experience and research. The man does his research. We actually went overtime, extra time on today's interview. I asked him before the show, I said, hey, how much time do you have today to record? And he said he had two hours. So we went an hour and a half. We went longer than what we intended to do because we really got into some important topics. I reached out to him as I frequently do with questions and comments and just support. But I reached out to Dr. Don Klum a few weeks ago because I was posting a lot of videos on my TikTok channel. I'm on TikTok at the Benazadi. And I was talking about snacking. I was talking about calorie counting and getting away from that. 
and on TikTok, a lot of people don't like that message. So I had all these fitness pros being tagged with huge following and they just bombarded my page with all this hate and negativity and how I'm crazy. It's what do you mean? It's just about the calories in versus calories out. So I said, hey, Don, let's do a full episode diving deep into the research and let's empower the keto campers, the community to understand why focusing on calories is a big distraction. So what we want to do and what we did on this episode is brought the research to you, brought the explanations, the analogies, so you understand it. So now when you have a conversation with a friend or a colleague or somebody on social media who's telling you it's all about calories in versus calories out, you could actually educate them because I've been down that calories in versus calories out route for several years and it just fails almost all the time long term. So we're going to get into that. Does calories in versus calories out actually matter? We're going to get into the glycogen concept and why we oversimplify it. He also shares that people who are happier burn more calories than people who are sad. We also get into blood markers you can use to monitor your insulin health, why snacking is damaging your health, signs you could be fasting too much and too often, why he believes it's better to eat breakfast and skip dinner, which actually inspired me to change up my routine a little bit. We also speak about why he hates the term breaking a fast. (laughs) You'll hear about that. Why quitting junk food causes withdrawal symptoms similar to a drug addiction. We also get into the relationship between adrenals, insulin, and cortisol, and why an overweight diabetic only has one gram to lose to become non-diabetic. But there's a caveat, that gram of fat needs to be lost in a specific area, and you'll hear where. Before I bring him on the show, I want to take a minute here to get to the Apple Podcast rating and review of the day. This is a five-star review from Dacha. Dacha says, Ben Azadi Keto, best and most informative keto podcast. Ben covers all the important topics and keeps us updated with new information on keto. Much appreciated. Dacha, thank you. I much appreciate you, my friend. I appreciate you listening to the show. I appreciate you taking the time to leave the show a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Seriously, these ratings and reviews really help the show grow. We put a lot of money, a lot of energy, a lot of time and resources into getting this content out to you. We've been super consistent, at least two episodes a week. And just by you pausing this right now and taking the time to leave an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts, it really does help support the show. It costs no money. It just costs a minute or two of your time. So thank you, Dasha, for doing that. And if you haven't left the show a rating and review, please do so right now. Did you know there's actually beverages that can supercharge your fasting results? My favorite, which is a keto powerhouse, is apple cider vinegar. There's a ton of research showing apple cider vinegar has been beneficial for boosting your metabolism, suppressing appetite, reducing fat storage. That's because apple cider vinegar contains acetic acid, which is a short-chain fatty acid that's been shown to promote weight loss in those ways. Also, apple cider vinegar is one of the best ways to balance your blood sugars. A study showed apple cider vinegar improved insulin sensitivity after high-carb meals up to 34%. We also know that apple cider vinegar stimulates digestion, acts as a bile stimulant to help break down the fat 
you're eating on keto. Another research study showed apple cider vinegar protects against mineral depletion. If you're like me, you probably don't like the taste of apple cider vinegar. I think it tastes disgusting. That's why my go-to is Paleo Valley's Apple Cider Vinegar Complex. This is an organic blend of apple cider vinegar and four more gut and health supportive superfoods. I take this before my meals, I take it before coffee, and this enhances my fast and my blood sugar regulation. You'll find it contains organic apple cider vinegar, organic turmeric, organic ginger, organic Ceylon cinnamon, and organic lemon. Since you are a listener of the Keto Camp podcast, we worked out an exclusive discount code for you to get the apple cider vinegar complex capsules and all of the products over at Paleo Valley. All you need to do is head to paleovalley.com and use the coupon code KETOCAMP15 at checkout for 15% off your entire order. By the way, they got delicious beef sticks and an awesome organ meat complex. Go check them out. Paleovalley.com. That is KETOCAMP15 at checkout. We'll also drop a link down below in the show notes. All right, let's dive deep into the calories in versus calories out flawed approach with Dr. Don Klum. Dr. Don Klum graduated from Life University in Marietta, Georgia in 1997 with a degree in human nutrition. He then moved to Chiropractic College West in California where he graduated with his doctorate of chiropractic in 2000. After graduation, Dr. Klum moved to San Jose, Costa Rica, where he was invited to work with the Costa Rican Olympic Committee and athletes. Dr. Klum participated in the National Central American and Caribbean and Central American Games as the team chiropractor and the official chiropractor for two professional soccer teams. As a frequent guest on national television and radio, Dr. Klum was influential in bringing the gift of holistic health care to the people of Central America and worked with the government programs instituting WHO procedures working directly with the indigenous populations of Costa Rica. Okay, Dr. Don Klum, welcome back for the third time to the Keto Camp Podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. I can't believe you had me back three times. I guess three strikes you're out. I don't know. <laughs> well, I was telling you offline before I hit record that I believe you're one of the most brilliant people in the health space out of all the people I've studied out there. You've been a huge influence on me. I know I've mentioned that before in previous episodes. So you're doing incredible work. I'm grateful to have you here for the third time. You were on episode nine. So one of the first 10 episodes where we talked about your 30 days of fasting, what it did to actually get rid of some really scary di cancer diagnosis and uh, skin tags and, and uh, moles you were having that just melted off essentially via autophagy. We also talked about diabetes, insulin and weight gain, the vitamin D connection. And then we actually went a little bit deeper into vitamin D when you came back on episode 145, which was about a year ago. We were talking about COVID and how vitamin D could help with the ACE2 receptor site and how a deficiency in vitamin D could leave you susceptible to this cytokine storm. You also mentioned on that episode that, that you've seen an inverted relationship between high insulin and low vitamin D. And as you get the insulin down, that's a good time to actually bring the vitamin D up. So those were amazing episodes for those listening. And if you haven't listened to those, we'll put those episodes in the podcast notes. Today's episode, we're going to focus on a topic that is a very heated topic. <laughs> this is probably what gets a lot of people uh, in these arguments because there's two primary camps out there, and no pun intended with the camp, but there is the camp that tells you, look, if you want to lose weight, 
It's very, very simple and basic. You don't have to make it complicated. It's like a math equation. You just have to eat a little bit less, move a little bit more, get into this caloric deficit, and you'll get your desired effect. I actually fell into that camp for several years. I did seminars and workshops, and I realized for me, I was doing my community a big disservice. The other camp, which is the camp that we're currently in, understands that the body is more complex than that. There's hormones, there's other things going on which you're going to deep dive into that makes a big difference with how your body could burn calories, store fat, etc. So, Don, with that being said, let's start right here because I messaged you on Facebook a few weeks ago because I posted about the snacking issue. I posted about recommending to stop the snacking and it was actually on TikTok and I got all these fitness pros and people tagging other fitness influencers who have big followings and I just got all this backlash so I said all right let's do a podcast about this and discuss it so why is that the calories in versus calories out approach flawed what what are some of the the big flaws with the people following that and there's so many that follow it Don well there's basically two sides to that story one the calorie concept itself Again, we're not saying that there's no such thing as a calorie or the energy doesn't matter coming in, coming out, but that calorie is a measurement of, of potential energy, okay? And so it, the way it's calculated, there's, a, there's an automatic buffer zone in there because it's there's done in a, in a laboratory. It's done in a very controlled environment, in an oven with measurements and things like that. That doesn't represent our body. So four calories out of a carb, for example, could be five in reality, could be three in reality, just 25% buffer in there. And so if you're trying, same thing with protein, same thing with fat, then there's alcohol, it's got seven calories, right? That's a big one. And then there's a prioritization of which one gets burned first. So all of that taken into consideration is really almost impossible to accurately count calories in your meals. Even if you measure it, even if you have done this for years and you're following a number, you're going to be off. You could be, most likely you're off with too many, but you can be off with, with too few as well in your calculation. So the entire equation is is inaccurate so that that's my problem number one with calories and number two is it's not our bodies aren't a linear system okay that's what the laws of of thermodynamics talk about a closed linear system our body is an open dynamic system that has a lot of variables and when you're talking about weight loss or weight gain muscle loss or muscle gain you're talking about hormonal state more than caloric state okay so your body is a demand driven machine it's not a supply driven machine what that means is just because you give it something doesn't mean it's going to do what you want i could take 300 grams of protein three meals a day of the best in the world in a year i'm not going to look like a bodybuilder just by that right i've tried it doesn't work (laughs) so you have to create the demand and you do that by your lifestyle you do that by your hormonal status hormones trump calories every single time every single time and so if you're in a state of growth or fed state, which means you're eating and insulin goes up and mTOR goes up, those are, are big ones, then you're going to be breaking down and storing, not eating, not using, right? Breaking down and storing. You actually break down muscle when you eat, as you eat protein, right? Very interesting thing. You're in, it starts to break everything down because your body can't be in two different systems, right? As you eat, it has to, it has to break it all down. And so your body goes into breakdown mode. That's insulin and mTOR. Hmm. And then when you stop that, that switches over to repair mode. And that's when things dissipate out and your liver starts to release things into the system, nutrients more, and you start to absorb them and use them. And that's when fat burning can happen. And that's where muscle building can happen. It's a separate state. 
uh, Fed versus repair or growth versus repair, however, however you want to look at it, they're opposing. You can't have them both at the same time. And so when you're trying to think about weight loss, you think about calories, hormones trump calories. So if insulin's there, it doesn't matter what those macronutrients are, you're in that state. You're in the Fed state and you can't do repair. That's all there is to it. And so calories are trumped by, by hormones and hormones dictate whether we're building or breaking down in the body and what's going on. So hormones are more important than calories. And when we talk about the fat storage hormones we have in the body, out of the 600 plus hormones in the body, Don, how many of them store fat? There are some that are that argumentatively store fat, but really it's insulin. Mm-hmm. It's insulin because fat storage is energy conservation. That's, that's all it is. It's a survival mechanism, essentially. Your body doesn't care what you look like, right? It cares that we have, we're not, body doesn't waste a thing. You know, I see people when they talk about fasting, say, oh, your body dumps minerals. <laughs> your body doesn't dump anything ever, right? Your body recycles. When you're in the repair state, your body recycles. Just think of autophagy as recycling. You know, forget the big word and what, what it means. The autophagy process is the recycling process. For example, when you're eating, people like to count how many proteins they're eating, how many grams and stuff like that. I don't get into that. I say you need a lot less than people say, and they get all over me. The reality is your body will recycle 700% more protein than you eat every day. What you eat actually contributes about 12.5% to your overall uh, protein use of that day. It's a minor part. It doesn't need it. And when you get into the repair state, that, that recycling goes up with autophagy. And it starts to utilize, utilize, utilize things a lot more. And that, that's going on in the absence of insulin. Because when insulin goes on, it says, okay, store. We got stuff coming in. Let's get ready. We're going to store this. Okay, it's breaking. That's why it breaks it down. And so it stores it in the form of glycogen in the liver and the muscles. And that can vary greatly between people. And an athlete, a competitive athlete, can have 4,000% more glycogen than someone who's sedentary. That's a lot. That's a lot of capacity, right? That's your, there's a glycogen capacity load. So that can vary. And then as that's going on, your body's insulin tells the fat cells to open up and bring it right in. Hmm. Okay. And so if you, you will store fat as insulin goes, when you have that, when insulin's on the, on the job, that's just what it does. And so you want it, insulin's important, mTOR is important, but you want it, be, you want it to be cyclic and fast cycles. Boom, fed, repair. Short fed, long repair. Short fed, long repair. Because everything that people think about in growth, like get bigger, stronger, faster, really happens in repair. Growth is, we're talking about babies. We're talking about pregnancy. We're talking about fat gain. And we're talking about tumors, to be honest, tumors, Hmm. right? So insulin is the fat storing hormone. It controls the fed state and it controls so many processes by doing it. That's, that's, the, that's the bottom line. And the other fat-burning hormones that we can argue about, they all follow insulin anyway. Same thing with mTOR. That's why you call insulin the bully of the block, because when insulin's around, it isn't really those fat-burning hormones that are kind of uh, scattered and running away, essentially. Insulin is a bully on the playground, right? And insulin has a minion, cortisol. Hmm. And when those two guys get together, it's even worse. They magnify each other when they're in an unhealthy state, right? right. There's nothing wrong with either one of them. But they're, they're the two hormones that we can control the most with our behavior and our thoughts. Now, you can't do that with a lot of uh, hormones. They're kind of on autopilot. They re- respond and react as they do based on how our body's built. But insulin and cortisol, you can activate with a thought. You can activate with an action like exercise or lack of exercise. You can activate it by how you eat. You can activate it by 
you know, perception of something. You can be wrong about a perception of a threat, for example, and you can throw it all off when it wasn't even real. Really, it's, it's really influential. And so when they get going and they get out of whack, they everything scatters. It throws There's teeter-totters with all the other hormones, how they work together. Everything gets thrown off. They're, they're the core center. Bullies on the playground, yeah. So you've mentioned before that people who are happier burn more calories than those who are not. How does that work? Different hormonal state, right? Different, different energetics. People, when you eat food that's soft with the same macronutrients as something that's more solid, you burn less calories, right? Because it's easier. So you're talking about, that's where like the, the argument between protein shakes, like powder protein and protein food comes in. 30 grams of each, identical amount of protein, dramatic difference in the body. Anything powdered or denatured, protein powder, uh, any kind of flour-based food for baking, wheat, and stuff like that, the body has a hyperinsulin response, right? Even though it's got the same amount of carbs or protein. So back to the protein, 30 grams of powder, 30 grams of steak or chicken or whatever it is. Low insulin impact, huge insulin impact. Can be up to seven times more than sugar. Wow. Certain ones. And so it's, it's a major insulin producer because your body doesn't sense nutrients in the blood like we, we've been taught. Mm-hmm. It interprets nutrients in our gut. Your food is not fuel. I really don't like it when people say that because it's misleading. It's not fuel. It's information. Your, your gut is on the outside of your body, if you think about it. Tube going down through your body on the way out. It's all on the outside. And your food tells your body, where are you? Where you are? Am I, am I in the north or the south? Is it, what, what time of year is it? What, what's the conditions of my environment, right? Well, what's, what's growing? What season is it? What's the earth like? But, so your body's interpreting all that. And when you throw in a processed food from a powder or, or otherwise, I think it just does, it goes like, what the heck is this? Why are you eating this, right? And doesn't know how to respond. So it, throw, it like, takes out the big guns and says, this has got to be something wrong. That's the only thing I can think of because it, it's very well documented, that hyper response. Which ones are worse in terms of that response for, for protein powders? I know you mentioned that whey protein is very insulogenic. So would you put that at the top of one of the highest insulin-causing protein powders? It's the most tested, and we know the most. But there's no reason, because here's what happens. I'll get a bunch of messages. I take pea protein. What about my pea protein? Or I have hemp protein. Or I have the... Oh, my, stop. There's no reason to think that other powdered proteins are any different. If you have a reason to think yours is different, let me know. Not just because you buy it. That doesn't count. Right, if there's a reason, but but the the science makes sense. It's a powder denatured product, concentrate or isolate doesn't matter, and your body hyper responds. Does it matter what kind of flour that the bread is made of to get the response? No, it doesn't. You know, it could be a crusty bread, could be a soft bread. You know, it, it doesn't matter. It's the fact that it's made like that in this process. Your body just over responds in our our view. So how would that show if somebody, let's say they have a protein shake and they, they're testing their glucose, they have a CGM or the blood glucose finger prick, they test before, they test after, like what would they see to kind of see what that protein's doing to them? Probably not too much because you can have a very different glycemic response, a glucose response to your insulin response. Dramatic. Because people often will write back to me, no, I tested my insulin and it didn't go up after I ate this. I'm like, you did? How'd you do that? Because you can't test, you can't finger prick and test your insulin. You have to go to a lab. It's, it's hard. That's why we don't have a whole lot of itemized food numbers for, for insulin like we do glucose. Because you can just test that all day long if you want or with a continuous, yeah. like you said. So, like, if you think about the protein, you, you can have a powder. might not affect your blood sugar that much. There's a lot of things on the diabetic, the American Diabetes Association food list that are 
approved for, for glucose, but they crank insulin up. Bad move, right? Really bad. Move. Things like milk, like yogurt, low glycemic. Dairy's been shown to improve diabetes, but the insulin goes off, is, is much more dramatic. So that's the big difference. You might not see a whole lot on your testing with glucose when insulin is spiked. Sometimes it'll even show your glucose go down because there's more insulin. Right. I've seen that before having sheep's milk yogurt. I've seen my, my glucose drop from like 75 to like 55 without any other variables. And that's exactly what happened there. I had a huge insulin response, which is fascinating. Do you think there's going to be a continuous insulin monitor or insulin sticks anytime soon to measure that? Yeah, I think it's industry driven, unfortunately. Right? Yeah. It's industry driven. And if they come up with a way to make money on it, like they do now, the glucose monitor, because I don't know, 10 years ago, we were playing with that at the different seminars we were, we would go to, uh, if you remember, and that they were really expensive, like $800 and all this crazy stuff to get one of those sensors. Now they're, they're going to be coming out in a couple of years. They'll be as cheap as a glucose monitor, yeah. a regular glucose prick monitor. So I think they will, because now you can get things that you couldn't get before. Like you can get vitamin D sent to your home, test and, and send it back. Yeah. Great. That used to be a big obstacle. And the price is coming down dramatically. And so you're going to see it. It's going to come out, uh, but it depends on the, on the demand. And that, that's industry. So, but, the, but here's the problem. Industry is focused on glucose. Yeah. Since 1923, when they discovered what insulin is and does, and they made it, they made it open source. They didn't patent it. They gave it to the world. They saw type 1 diabetics that were dying live. Dramatic. Huge advance, but the problem is we translated that same model into type two. They didn't have much type two when this happened. That was just for type ones. And when they were wasting away, you gave them what they called secretions at the time. They didn't even have the name yet. They would come back to life. They would plump up. Huge issue. I mean, these are kids, seven years old. Parents, I mean, it's a very emotional, great thing. And then as we went, we had a cure now for type one. And suddenly type two starts creeping up. And we, we said, oh, well, we got got insulin it to help them and it translated and it's the wrong model it's like going across the street in england and looking the wrong way what happens when you step out you get hit by a car mm -hmm. right because they drive on the other side i want to look both ways before i step and we're not so that's the problem the industry is glucose centric but insulin resistance metabolic syndrome pre-diabetes type 2 diabetes heart disease uh, alzheimer's they're all insulin centric so what are some blood markers that we could do on a quarterly basis or maybe yearly basis to monitor our insulin health? You can do a serum insulin, which is a fasting insulin, like you do a fasting glucose. You'll get a number there. You want it as low as possible. It really isn't too low unless, um, unless you're diabetic, right? Assuming you're not type 1 diabetic mm -hmm. uh, or insulin-dependent type 2, then I want mine around 2 or 3 if I can do it, definitely under 5. And uh, some of the lab values go up to 25 or 30, which is tremendous. And the reason you want that low is because when you eat, you can have that will number will go up up to seven times what it is at the baseline from the food. So if you're at five, you go up to 35. Cool. Right. But if you're at 20, still medically normal, now you're at about 140. Crazy. Dramatic difference. Yeah. And you do that throughout the day, you got a problem. And then you end the day high, you roll into the next day high, and that's what starts to build the process. That's what starts to build the process. And most Americans, unfortunately, 50% of them eat in a 14-hour window, <laughs> 14 hours, 15 hours, I'm sorry, 15-hour window, 50%. It means basically eating from the time they wake up until the time they go to bed. 90% of them are eating in a 12-hour window, 12 hours from start to finish. That means 10% out there are eating in a less than 12-hour window, never mind eight 
or six, like some of the people we work with, right? Yeah. So we eat, 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 keeping us in a fed, fed state, keeping insulin dominant. And there's a lot of problems with that. It's just not meant to be. Yeah, and I remember that survey you did on your, your patient population when you determined that they were snacking, essentially eating 17 to about 23 times per day within the whatever, 14 to 15 hours, which is crazy because even, Don, if it's the healthiest snacks in the world, it's still causing that insulin spike and it's still leading to potentially insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. So for those who are listening and they're snackers, what would you say to that? Yeah, snacking causes a lot of issues. That was a big study. That wasn't mine. I, I repeated it in, in my population. Uh, but when they actually track, not not memory, like write down how many times you think you snack, and they actually tracked. It was an expensive big study because you had to monitor people. They ate caloric or flavored food or drink or something 19 to 23 times a day. So what, what happens then? People who spread out the multiple meals, they, they have more negative metabolic impact. And these are big population studies. This is, it, it, it's not cause and effect, but it's, it's very tight correlation. Like I bank on it. And so, and, and also for weight loss, multiple meals have not beat, have shown to be fewer meals. Sometimes they say they're about the same. Okay, I'll take that. If it doesn't show a, a, a significant improvement, I don't want to go there because I know about insulin. I know about mTOR, keeping us in the fed state, which we don't want to be in all day long, all day, not all night, because then you don't repair. And so, we talked about recycling when your body's not in the fed state when it's got some time away from food you start to go into autophagy or the recycling state and that's very important because one of the things that happens is it starts to cells work better and cells that are have overstayed their welcome will turn off or they'll die that's where autophagy comes from our autophagy does not kill cells we don't kill our own cells it basically you got cells that they have a timeline and when they get beaten up a little bit and they're, they're not treated well at their job, they go over their retirement age, right? They're, they're working longer than they should. And so here comes autophagy, goes in and fixes that, resets that clock, and they go, oh, I'm not supposed to be here. They die. This is the way they, they live. So they don't get killed. They die. And what that does is it allows new cells from the stem cells to come in and, and replace them. And the first things that get broken down in that process is lipid deposits. That's like fatty liver fatty pancreas, and uh, fat in the, in the muscle. The fat's not supposed to be there, not, at least not triglycerides, because they're made of fat, but a different kind. So triglycerides, and they mess, they guck out the works. So the first things that come out is you break down those fat droplets. And where does the fat droplets come from? Being stuck in the fed state, because remember, mm -hmm. they're opposing. But one side does, the other side doesn't. They do mm -hmm. their opposite. And they can't both be on. People get this mixed up. They can't both be on. You can't be doing, in one area of the body, a fed action, in the other area of the body, a repair action. It's like being in one room and the lights, uh, one light in the ceiling and being dark over there and light over here. You can't. It's, it's, it's all or nothing. This is the way it works. Uh, and so the fed state stores fat. When it when it's it got too much coming in, doesn't know what to do, it starts to store it in places it really shouldn't. The liver, pancreas, other organs, visceral, that's where visceral fat comes from. Mm -hmm. That's where triglycerides in the muscle comes from. And that's where plaquing comes from, as in Parkinson's, as in Alzheimer's. Right? So you have to be in the fed state because that, that'll reverse. That's what gets broken down. What also gets broken down is scar tissue. When someone goes on a fast, for example, that's some of the first tissue that gets broken down, scar tissue. Because when we, if you ever twisted an ankle or you, you had a biology or health class, you know that the body will repair that with inflammation, the whole thing, but it over repairs. Right? You get more, you lays down erratic overabundance of, of scar tissue. And I used to always wonder, why does that happen? Now I think I know because when you go into 
times of not eating in the repair state, it just breaks it down. It trims that out. But if we never get there, we get overproduction of scar tissue. Major issue for surgeries, failed back surgeries, knee surgeries, or orthoscopic. There's a big problem with that because the body just never cleans it out and just lays it down. So fed state, you get the fat deposits, repair state, you take them away. You never get in repair state, there's a problem. So the magic lies in, in flexing in between both those pathways, mTOR autophagy, mTOR autophagy. Somebody who is obese, very much overweight, they need more of the lean state. They need more of the autophagy versus somebody who's already in a healthy body weight. They need more of the balance. Is that fair to say? Not a balance. They are 100% important to each of them. They are not 50-50 partners. You want to be very little fed state, and a long repair state. Okay, doesn't make one more important than the other. You just don't want to be in the repair. You want to be in the growth too long because what what happens is is if the body's not recycling, think of your house. If you're, if you're not recycling for a while, what starts to happen? You start to accumulate all these Amazon boxes that get filled <laughs> totally. up and get junky. It gets messy. Same thing in the body. Cells get debris and it builds up and eventually it's called biomass, and that's important because biomass is what cancer cells will use to build their fortress. To protect themselves, it's called a tumor. That's why. That's why cancer can grow so fast. It's got. It's living in our junkyard. It's like huh, I got everything I need, and it gets in that state and it just starts to take things that we 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 fed it ourselves with that. And so what happens? That builds up in the growth state, in the fed state, right? Mm-hmm. And so, but the repair state cleans it out. And so if you're not recycling, you're not getting those Amazon boxes out. You get you get a mess, and that mess can turn into uh, fuel and raw materials for cancer. I want to take a quick break here to share with you about the dangers of taking fish oil. I know, shocking. I was somebody who took fish oil every single day for years. And then I came across a ton of research showing the dangers of consuming fish oil. I immediately found an amazing product called Pureform. Pureform is a plant-based omega. And the cool thing about Pureform is that it is uniquely processed with nitrogen to preserve it and make sure it does not oxidize. These essential fatty acids are cold pressed and you get the proper balance of omega-6 and omega-3 to feed your cells what it desires. We know that life begins and ends at the cell membrane. And when you have the proper fats, the building blocks for those cell membranes, all of a sudden your fat burning hormones can do its job so you lose weight. All of a sudden, your cells produce energy, so you feel good. So we know that cellular health is key for performance and longevity. So I've been taking Pureform every single day. My dog takes it every single day. So does my girlfriend and my mom. This is how much I love the product. If you wanna get your bottle delivered to your door, head over to purelifescience.com, check them out, Order a bottle or two, and you'll be amazed by how you feel after taking this just after a few days. That is purelifescience.com. Use the coupon code BEN4 to apply a $4 off coupon. That is BEN, B-E-N, and the number four. International shipping is available. Okay, let's go back into this episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. We do want more of the repair and the autophagy versus the the growth. But the but the, the reason I brought that up is because a lot of people, myself included, when I first discovered fasting back in 2013, I did too much fasting, too much repair, which could also be a problem, right? Don, if somebody's fasting too much, what are some of the issues with that? Well, you, you need to be able to give time for repair. I teach progressive 
fasting rotations. So I use a calendar. I, my, my program, six month program, we map it out over 20, uh, 25 weeks, so six months basically. And you have a more close proximity. You can do that for a while, but you can't keep doing that. Okay, you don't want to, because we talk about the stem cells. We talk about the new cells that come in and, and the repair that goes that goes on. That happens doesn't happen in the fasting. It happens after. Okay, it happens as a growth starts to kick in, and then the next repair cycle. Right, the growth kicks in, which because we want it, it's important. That produces the stem cells. They go to different. They're, they're new workers. They're replacing the old ones. They're on the job. They're energetic. They got new DNA strands, new telomeres. They're all gone. home. everyone's happy. Great. That's the, the anti-aging element. But if you don't treat them well, those new workers they bail. You could lose ninety-seven percent of them if you if you don't end the fast the right way. Mm. Okay. And so if you fast too consecutively, you don't allow that process to go on. And you can. It is very very rare that you actually le- lose muscle, lean body muscle from fasting. Even when you analyze the nitrogen. Uh, balance that they do in studies that comes from a lot of places doesn't mean it's coming from muscle you won't you won't lose a single muscle fiber mm. if you during fasting if you've done it right even yeah. if you fast seven ten days yeah dr funk said you would have to have a body fat percentage of about five percent or less to really tap into muscle or damage or damage that's the other it. thing if you do the wrong kind of workouts you can oh, i teach functional fasting it's not therapeutic you know it's guided it's not clinical all right so it's professionally guided not not uh, clinical, not medically clinical. So it, functional makes means you have to be able to live your life. Mm-hmm. And so when people go through my program and go through that 25 weeks, I want them to be able to work, play, and work out like nothing happens. You got, and then once they're done, they have those tools. They can do it anytime. Okay, you don't have to go sit on a pillow somewhere where someone watches you uh, to fast and, and take time off work. That, that's not functional. I don't like that. Maybe for medical reasons, I don't know. But I'm just talking for general. I think this should be a lifestyle, and yeah. we teach it as a lifestyle. You said something that was important. You said breaking the fast is important. And it's not just that one meal. It's actually a lot longer than that. Could you explain a little bit more? Yeah, it's. I, I don't like the term breaking the fast because cause then everyone asks, well, does this break the fast? Does this break the fast? It drives me. It's on, in my Facebook group, that's one of the rules. Do not ask, does this break a fast question. What breaks a fast depends on why you're doing the fast. If it's just because I said so, oh, get out of here. You know, this is not, I'm not looking for dogma here. If it's because you want autophagy, then you got one set of parameters. Mm-hmm. If it's because you want to lower insulin, you got another one. Same thing with weight loss. That's what decides what breaks the fast. I don't like that. So the reintroduction of food, I call it the reinforcement stage because you got the stem cells going, you got to reinforce them. You got to lock them in, right? And that's not just the first meal. That's uh, up to two weeks after. You can have a little fast and have other fast in there, but you got to make sure you're going there. So once you come off, you got to eat a certain way. You got to stay insulin friendly. Okay. And exercise is really important. Exercise is one of the key components to keeping those new workers. Why, why is that? Is it a human growth hormone aspect? I think so. I mean, I got some theories and stuff, but we do know that exercise is a fundamental. If you're not doing it regularly, then your percentage of, of turnover goes up of hmm. recycling. It, they'll get recycled too, just like other parts. So you want to make sure you got to get the food part down, and that means quality, that means low insulin exposure, and that means a lot of time without food. We're, we're now incorporating the concept of meal spacing with for mini fasts, daily mini fasts. So you have the nighttime fast, right? And then if you have a meal and you have six, eight hours in between, you can create a mini fast. So you can actually go into a low level of autophagy there as well. Mm-hmm. You can double it up, and it compounds. 
Okay, so you have fasting, and then you have what I call the magnifiers. What can magnify that benefit? Not just from the fast, but that whole process. And that's things like exercise, what and when. That's things like meal timing, meal spacing, uh, eating windows, what's called intermittent fasting. We talked about that. Yeah. It's called intermittent fasting and so forth. Because there's a huge pools of data that tell us which way, in general, these behaviors shift. And most people are doing intermittent fasting in a disadvantageous way. They're not doing it well, and they're actually putting themselves at risk. Contrary to what the popular belief is out there, just eating what you want in an eight-hour window doesn't, isn't going to make everything change for you. When that eight-hour window starts, very important. How long do you wait to eat after you wake up? Turns out it's important. When do you eat that last meal? That's important. How big yeah. is that last meal? Important. So you can modify these things and magnify the benefits, like compounding interest, one thing after another, after another, after another. And the other thing is daily repetitive action gets adapted to, mm -hmm. even good action. I used to teach intermittent fasting the old way, and we had a lot of people go through it. And I watched them plateau, and I watched things flatline, and I watched them go backwards. And I was like, oh, this is not supposed to happen. Body will adapt. So we look at weeks, not days, when we plan out our time. It's a, what is the net effect of a week, not day in, day out? Because then we get into the do the same thing all the time. And that the body doesn't like constant stuff. Nothing. It doesn't like. Like think of a heart rate variability. Mm -hmm. A constant, you know, it the healthier you are, the more variability you have between those beats. You want a lot of you want them different every time. The ultimate constant in a heartbeat is a flat line. You're dead. So so go figure. Yeah, good point. And you know, a lot of the studies that backlash fasting, like that JAMA study that came out last year, was exactly to your point. They didn't change their eating habits during their window. They could have been eating closer to bed. They ate until ad libitum until full. They didn't control what foods they were eating. They could have been high insulin foods. And then of course, this, this title said fasting didn't work for weight loss because they missed the whole point there. It's not just the fasting and the feasting window. It's all the other variables at play. Something that we were talking about, Don, before I hit record was the eating breakfast and skipping dinner versus the vice versa. You've seen with your research that actually having breakfast is more beneficial with the fasting benefits than having skip breakfast and, and dinner. So could you talk a little bit more about that and why you think the breakfast is actually a better idea? Yeah, that falls in line with those big data sets that we know about international, around the world that we have. And I used to teach the opposite. I used to teach breakfast is is not the most important meal of the day. You know, I used to, that used to be my you know clickbait thing, you know, throw people off. But now I, I think differently. It's very clear that the longer you delay breakfast, the worse your metabolic outcomes are. So if you wait, you wake up and wait three hours or more, your cardiometabolic risks go up. And that's just one isolated factor, right? And so now within our week time frame, we have rotations of the days. So I have some days where I get up, and I want to eat within an hour, right? And, and a couple of days of the week, I don't, I, I, I set it out because I want the net effect. Mm -hmm. But to do it every day, the more you delay, the more that risk goes up. So what would you see? What would you see? What, what did the studies show? You, insulin resistance markers all, all change. They go towards insulin resistance. So you get glucose control and reaction gets worse. Insulin gets worse. You get cortisol response gets worse and so forth. And weight is associated with weight gain and things like that. Again, not causative. These are big numbers. But clearly, there's a correlation. I mean, as strong as you can get. 
So uh, that's the big issue. And then also, if you look at the metabolic profile, a hormonal profile of a human throughout the day, if I didn't know any of these fun arguments that we're doing, I just looked at that, I would say we were designed to eat in the morning. Everything points in that direction. Higher stomach acid, all the hormones set up for it. Once you eat it and then you measure it throughout the day, it, it changes how your day goes in a favorable way, whereas backloading at the end does the opposite. So it's like almost like if you're just reading the numbers, we were meant to eat in the morning. Our body prepares us to eat in the morning, and when we don't, there's a problem. What about the argument that in the morning we have higher levels of cortisol and we have lower levels of ghrelin typically around 9 a.m.? How about that argument? Well, those are isolated factors. You know, cortisol peaks at 4 a.m. generally. Mm -hmm. If it still stays high at 7 or 8 when you're waking up, then that's not normal. You're, you're taking an average of someone who's not, that's a delayed onset. That's a circadian rhythm issue. And the other thing is we now know, but the information's not out there, that our circadian rhythm doesn't program our eating patterns. That's, that's been the thought. We eat based on our circadian rhythm, our natural time clock, and things like that. What we now know is that we program our circadian rhythm by mainly how we eat and behave in the, in the day. So you can change it. And so what you're doing rolls into the night which changes that hormone sequence and your cortisol will be delayed. You eat a big meal after 6 p.m., all your, uh, you eat any meal. You just, if you don't stop eating by 6 p.m., you, all your cardiometabolic numbers get worse. Hmm. Okay, they get worse. Weight gain goes up and stuff like that. If you eat your biggest meal after 6 p.m. or as dinner, it doesn't even have to be at 6 p.m., same thing, same thing happens. So now if you're eating after 6 and it's your biggest meal, double, right? It starts to go on and that pushes back your circadian rhythm, then that messes up your sleep. Okay, you mess up your sleep, every time you wake up at night, your cortisol gets bumped another 30% every single time, right? And so now you got all these factors just making a wave and that pushes back your cortisol. So now it's delayed in the morning and that's an issue. If you, if you have that under control, it's not an issue. It's just not. And it doesn't matter. You need that. Cortisol's not bad either. We talked about that. Mm -hmm. Cortisol's not bad. It is absolutely important. You didn't have it, you would die. You want it. It is our anti-inflammatory. You blow a shoulder, what do they give you? Prednisone, yep. synthetic cortisol. Cortisone, same thing. Yep. These are these drugs are cortisol, synthetically made. Same thing. It, your cortisol is not your inflammation hormone. It's your anti-inflammation hormone. Why does autophagy in the recycling process of the body cause so much inflammation to go down? Because it raises cortisol. It can double. Your cortisol will double. It's not a problem, right? It's not a problem. The problem with cortisol is that we can activate it like that, mm -hmm. with our thoughts. Cortisol only la doesn't last that long in the system either. So when you do those tests, they're, they're, it's hard to interpret because you could be at a high point, low point. You don't know why. Yeah. It, it takes about 45 minutes. 45 minutes after cortisol goes up, it comes back down below baseline. But the, the real issue is that cortisol will go up because of a perceived event or a thought. It shows that, say you're worried about an argument, your cortisol reaction goes through the roof, whether you have the argument or not. <laughs> so you can worry about it and not have it, and then you still get hit by that negative impact as if you did. <laughs> that's pretty, that's pretty that's significant. Yeah. And so that's the issue with cortisol. But cortisol is not a problem. And so you ask the delayed, it shouldn't be delayed, and so therefore it shouldn't be that high. If it is, we got more fundamental work to do. 
understood. For those listening, because a lot of the, the keto campers, they they practice intermittent fasting, we'll call it that. And when they skip breakfast, and they'll probably have like a 12 to 6 hour eating window. And something that I'm going to start implementing, because I tend to skip breakfast and probably have just some coffee. What I'm hearing you say is it's healthier to balance that out with maybe three or four days out of the week where you actually eat first and skip dinner. So having that balance could suit you better than every day skipping breakfast is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, Ben, we go back a while. What I'll do is I'll explain that in a second, but I'll give you a template link for Canva that has a week schedule. And it'll show, it'll show how I break it up, where I put the workouts, where I put the meals, when I do two meals, when I do three meals. When, you know, And you can then take that brand and do what you want and give it to your people. And they can use it as a model to, to plan out because, again, we don't daily thing gets us. So intermittent fasting can be done in well, and it can compound those magnifiers for you. But you got to got to know these things. And so, like you said, three four days a week, no breakfast, three days a week I do. I eat within an hour or so of working out. I have to I like to you're you're better off exercising before you eat in a day mm-hmm. in a fasted state. So you factor that in as well. So four days a week, I do that. Three nights, I do in the evening, and there's the reason. And then, then you shift your window. So Because so, if you're eating breakfast, some days your window just your eight-hour window just got shorter. And eight to nine doesn't seem to have much difference. So if you go to nine, you're, you're okay. Mm-hmm. As long as you don't go over 10, that's what the data shows. So eight hours, so that shifts. So some days you might end eating by 3.30 or 4. You just, just you know that ahead of time. So you're not skipping breakfast, you're skipping dinner. Got it. And some, and some days it shifts back, and now you're you're finishing by six, and you're compounding the benefits that way versus compounding the negative by eating late and the big meal. Right. The other thing is, is, is food stacking. We do the recommendation that I put out is fifty percent of the food for the day for breakfast, thirty-five percent or first meal, however you want to look at that, thirty-five percent okay. for the second meal or lunch, fifteen percent for dinner or the third meal, mm. and no stacking in between. Now that is more advantageous. If you're going to mess up a meal, do it for breakfast. You're much more metabolically flexible, and there's a forgiveness there. There's a mm. forgiveness, much more than there is dinner, because everything gets delayed in, in, in response. Your glucose response changes, insulin response changes, everything changes into the evening. Because if you look at the numbers, it looks like we weren't meant to eat at night. You got to think, we didn't have fire for our entire genome development. We, it's only actually a short time. I don't know what they say, 40,000 years or so, which sounds like a lot, but it's not. It's not really mm-hmm. it. You know, and so when the sun went down, it was dark, not just dark, but like dark. Mm-hmm. Right. And so they I don't think they did, did a whole lot of anything. Right. They definitely weren't hunting or doing working with much. They didn't have fire. So they ate during the sunlight hours. That's the same concept. Makes sense. Yeah. The, the, the challenge for me and maybe somebody else listening is that. I know that I probably should be having breakfast on those days, three or four days before 10 a.m. However, when I have a meal in the morning, I'm not as mentally sharp and energized. I'm not in that fasted state. I don't have those counter-regulatory hormones working for me. So the challenge for me is, is accepting that, understand that I'm doing my body some good, and maybe I might not be, or maybe my body will adapt to it. I don't know. But when I do have breakfast, Don, I'm just not as mentally clear as, as if, I, if I stayed fasted. Well, that... That could be true. That's, that's subjective. It's hard to say. Right? Yeah. But, you know, you mentioned ghrelin before. The morning ghrelin hormone is reflected by the days eating the day before. Okay? So you get a high insulin, you raise ghrelin, and it carries over. Right? You eat a hard, carbo- hard carbohydrate meal late at night. On Tuesday, Wednesday, your hunger scores all go up. 
Interesting. So the, so the studies that show ghrelin is at its highest point around 9 a.m. probably is following a standard American diet approach, those individuals. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. There's no okay. way they're, they're isolating out a different diet. It makes so sense. That, that's that you got to assume. In the beginning, when you're making these changes, you're becoming what I call meta- metabolically fit. Okay, It's not necessarily physical fitness. It's metabolically fit, meaning you can go between fat or some people call it fat adaptive, similar. You make a distinction, but you can go between sugar and glucose. You can go into ketosis and out, and then when you go out, you come back in pretty quickly. That's metabolically flexible, metabolically fit. Yeah. Okay. When you're there, it's a different story. But when you're getting there, think of it like you're speaking Chinese and your hormones all speak English. You're talking to each other, but you don't know what each other's saying. You can't trust them. Culturally, we've been conditioned to interpret a lot of stuff that's not hunger as time to eat. Right, so they say you're hungry. Could be thirst. A lot of people dehydrated, big time. Right, could be thirst. Could be boredom. Right, could be just habit. This time of day, I should be eating. Mm-hmm. Right, all that kind of stuff is, is triggering. And so, in the beginning, you got to kind of separate that. In my programs, I go slow and I build up because we want to downregulate a little bit of insulin. We're not. Gonna, it's not going to get fixed in the first month, but we start to downregulate it and cortisol so they don't pair up. And then you see emotional eating is hormonal, not necessarily emotional, right? It's not psychological most of the time. You know, people swear I'm an emotional eater and it's because of blah, blah, blah. Well, we make these changes and those hormones get not, start playing nice together. Guess what? No more emotional eating. That's great because it wasn't a psychological issue. Mm. That's good. I think that's a good thing. It still could be, but that's, that's what we see. And so you die, you get hunger goes away cravings go away now you're speaking the same language you can move forward because acute hunger is aberrant that's not normal because if we were out in hunter gatherer days and every time we missed a meal we got a headache got dizzy we wouldn't exist today (laughs) we'd be dead dead. we'd be dead we wouldn't last a day yeah right and that's what people do that with one meal people do that skipping snacks you really judge someone's metabolic health by how long and what they're like when they go without food i ask yep. it on all my intake what's it like if you stopped eating at lunch and didn't eat the rest of the day mm-hmm. you should see what they write all yeah. sorts of stuff yeah same thing yeah. when you say what happens if you don't get your coffee yeah right yeah. <laughs> i asked the same question i asked how do you feel when you skip a meal oh, i can't focus i'm hangry i'm you know a bitch to be around well you that's some metabolic damage we got to repair so same so, thing you know what that is most of that that's called withdrawal mm. Car- carbohydrate withdrawal symptoms is that what you're saying it doesn't matter. Addiction withdrawal. It's an addiction. Mm. You know, because look at someone who stops drinking, who's got a problem, shakes, lightheaded, irritable, yep. don't feel good, sweats. I could just, just have read off one of my intake forms for someone who skipped a meal, right? It's the same thing. And so people like to hear that, but it is an addiction because the food fuels the addiction pathway and food is more addictive than drugs. It hits two mm major pathways hits the brain like all the drugs and the dopamine the pleasure center we know about that but it also hits the serotonin in the body most of our serotonin is made in the gut stored in the pancreas in the islet cells with the insulin so every time insulin gets shot out so does serotonin it doesn't cross the blood brain barriers it doesn't help our brain but it goes in our body and it gives us that <sighs> relaxation feeling right fast and so now you eat some junk that stimulates the insulin Boom, you get the serotonin of the body, the dopamine of the brain. You just got a double one-two punch, and that's a major form of addiction. Because you ever see someone who's hangry or the commercial's hangry, and they eat, take one bite of something, and suddenly they calm down. Mm-hmm. Their food's barely out of their mouth. 
It's not in their stomach, not through their liver, not in their body, not in the cells to make a change. That's a hormonal reaction of those two things going together instantly. Just like an alcoholic or a cigarette smoker, all they need is one puff and boom, suddenly <laughs> back, right? All that edge is off because it's hormonal. It's, it's neurotransmitters, chemical change going on. That's, that's what addiction withdrawal. And if you're doing that with food, it means that that addiction center isn't different for now alcohol or cigarettes or internet use. Right? You're priming that pump. We're all primed for addiction because of the way we're, we're eating chronically. And so it's a big issue. And so I address it as a physical issue. I, I do a brain-based detox when I'm working with this because I want to rehab the brain, the addiction centers, the actual brain, not just the behavior, the willpower. It's not about willpower. There was a great series. And I think you were at the seminar where I was speaking there, and so was the guy from Fit to Fat to Fit. Yes, in Nashville. Yeah, Drew Benny. Nashville, exactly. And I, I had dinner with him. We, we had a great time. And just I told him, I said, his your docu-series or what that was, was one of the most insightful things I've seen in weight loss there is. And he's like, what are you talking about? Because what you did, they, they're super ripped trainers. Mm-hmm. They decide to put on 70 pounds and then go through their a program with someone who's overweight together to lose it. So they go from fit to fat to fit. And you watch what happens when these fit, healthy, energetic people start to put on the weight. They get all the characteristics that we attribute to people who are overweight. Mm. So it's not the people that are, it's a symptom, right? There no, one guy got uh, separated from his fiance. I watched him like five times each, like the whole thing. It's just amazing. And you get that you, it's a symptom of what's going on. And so as that happens, those hormones change, they eat more, right? And so it plays off itself. Think of a kid. A kid like my sons, when they're growing up, teenagers, they eat like crazy and they get and they grow. Now, are they growing because they're eating more? No. Well, if that was true, the tallest person would be the one who ate the most, just like the bodybuilder, right? It's not. They are eating more because they're growing. Mm. That's hormonal. You change the hormones and suddenly motivation goes down, depression goes up. Depression is directly linked to visceral fat in women. Right, it's the same with adrenal fatigue. There's symptoms of it. You're changing the chemistry. You, it's it's, a, it's amazing because a lot of people have that bias. Like, oh, if you're big and overweight, and you're you're lazy, or you see people and they don't have as much energy, they get winded and they don't want to do things. And you blame it on them. It's not them. It's the hormonal state that they're in. You change that state, and they'll do and just like the the trainers did. But when you're not, it's really hard to break out of that. It's really hard. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it makes total sense, and it, it it reminds me of that commercial from Snickers, like "Hungry, Why Wait?" Like you're not yourself when you're when you're hungry. It's it's yeah, you got Joe Pesci, you know that exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It turns into a nice little kid. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant marketing, but it's the wrong message. I, I want to get into the topic of you mentioned it a little while ago, the adrenal fatigue issue. Before I get to that, I had a question about the pancreas and testing insulin. You mentioned fasting insulin, ideally below five. Do you also test or put any emphasis on c-peptide testing that no because i start with the easy ones you okay. can get into that but because you can you'll know before you get to c-peptide you don't have to do c-peptide you okay. know if, if triglycerides are over 100 you know it, there's an insulin issue or resistant at least over 150 and it's a metabolic syndrome marker so you know that because triglycerides are formed in the fed state fed state is on because of insulin it's a really strong correlation and that's well established and accepted. Same thing with vitamin D. Insulin resistance, not necessarily insulin levels, insulin resistance, you can't see my hands, is inversely related on a teeter-totter with vitamin D. Your vitamin D is low, 
you have insulin resistance. Hmm. That's why I got clients from Pacific Northwest taking 10,000, 20,000 IUs of vitamin D a day for years. Still low. Nothing. Got people in Florida, right? Right down your block, probably. Yeah. Beautiful tan, sun bunnies, low vitamin D. Doesn't make sense. It does when you say insulin's up and insulin holds down D. Hmm. Holds it down. It will, it can't go up. So you bring down insulin resistance and D can go up at that point. Hmm. So if it's low, that's insulin resistant. What else you can do? Those, that's enough for me right there. Okay. Uh, same thing, uh, LDL. That's why LDL is a marker for metabolic syndrome and HDL isn't, right? Mm. Except if it's low, right? So you say, so HDL is low. If it's below 40 for men, below 50 for women, then that's a marker. It's your insulin resistant because of the way the Fed state it, it does that because HDL is more of an immune marker than it is actual cholesterol, mm. right? Things like that. And so waist circumference. You're over 30, if you're over 34 inches in a woman or over 38 inches in a man, you're you're definitely insulin resistant. If you're over 35 and 40, then that's a marker for metabolic syndrome. That's good to know. That's good to know. So we'll put that in the notes, exactly what you just described there. One last note on the calories in versus calories out conversation before we get to the adrenal fatigue. You were speaking about those who have type 1 diabetes, meaning they're not producing any insulin. And to, to make the point here that it's an insulin issue for weight gain, not a calorie issue, somebody who has type 1 diabetes, and let's say they're not taking insulin, they could eat all the food they want and they still wither away. Is that a fact, yeah. Don? Yeah. Yeah. Because of insulin, thankfully, we don't deal with that kind of situation anymore. But when they were, we're talking 1900, 1923, has got the best documentation, and it hits kids around seven to nine years old, they just, they literally waste away. All the insulin production isn't gone. There's usually some, but absolutely not enough. And so they, they emaciate. They can't store any fat. They can't store any energy. No matter how much they eat. Yeah, no. They would put them on all sorts of diets, mm-hmm. right? All sorts of diets. And believe it or not, the, the, the one of the last ones they were using was a, a very low-calorie diet, almost like a, a fasting mimicking diet. You know, still didn't work, but it delayed some things, and there's different reasons for that. But as soon as they gave them the insulin, they plumped up, like, yeah. like within days and weeks. It was immediate response. It was a cure for yeah. that. You know, one of the few cures we actually have in medicine. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah. If there is, that might be the only, but anyway, we can talk about that. But why? Because now their body can store energy. Glycogen, that, the glycogen makes muscles look fuller, right? So you get that, you get a look there too. And they function better. They have better output. And, and you don't pull from the system so much when you have glycogen in there because it, it balances out and doesn't tap the... It's like having money in your wallet and not having to go to the ATM. Mm-hmm. The more money and flexibility you have in your wallet, the more you can do without tapping that savings. Same kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, so they, they became much more functional that way. And the liver as well. And they could put on fat. And so you can see it's dramatic. Face changes, everything changes. Because it, because it, fat's in the skin, right? The thick layers of skin and it just it just changed and so that was it without the insulin they couldn't store because if insulin was important because here's what they say here's where the narrative is is wrong and we've known this almost from yeah probably from the beginning they say insulin is needed because it brings glucose into the cells the cells can burn energy otherwise you get a state of starvation and they said that because look at those kids they look like it right makes sense you give them insulin they're back to life okay but now we can have things we can look at these things, right? And it doesn't. Cells don't need insulin to burn energy, to burn glucose. Don't need it. Don't need it at all. 
every cell for energy is insulin independent. Mm. And they get it through active diffusion. When there's glucose around, it takes in until it balances, and that's what it does. doesn't matter if insulin is there or not. They will still continue at the same rate. Where we need insulin is to take that energy, put it in the fat, take that energy, put it in the, in the glycogen. That's mm. what we need it for. That's the key. Every other cell is just burning, burning away. No problem. Okay. And so your cells aren't starving, right? They're just doing their thing. And so that, that's a big misunderstanding in there uh, with that. Cells are not, don't need insulin for energy use. They need it for storage. We need it for storage. If you're anything like me, you probably spend some money each month on your supplements. But what if you're still tired and you just don't feel 100% well? Well, there could be a deficiency. What if there was a way to know if you were actually absorbing your supplementation or not absorbing and maybe you're taking too much of something? Well, what I'm bringing you today is a chance to accurately test all of that. In this case, I'm talking about upgraded formulas, upgraded hair test kit and consultation. And once you uncover these hidden deficiencies, you could get rid of these symptoms you might be experiencing that might be affecting your thyroid, adrenals, or much more. Upgraded Formulas is a very cool company. I interviewed Barton Scott, who is the founder and chemical engineer who helps craft all their supplements, and they have this really cool upgraded mineral deficiency analysis. So say goodbye to blood and urine tests, which typically indicate short-term results. Hair is the best identifier, and you could get that hair from your head, armpit area, or even pubic area, and you'll receive a consultation with a member of Upgraded Formulas to help discuss your results. And it's very simple. Collect your hair sample, send it in, and get your results fast. We've worked out an exclusive deal, KetoCamp podcast listeners, to receive 10% off your order. Head to UpgradedFormulas.com, use the coupon code BEN10 at checkout to get your hair mineral kit and any other supplements that you could find on their website. That is UpgradedFormulas.com. Use the coupon code BEN10. Let's talk about adrenal fatigue. I heard you say, as I was studying for this podcast, that only a third of cortisol is actually made from the adrenals, and the rest is from the fat and the brain. I didn't know that. Could you talk more about that and then get into the relationship between adrenals, insulin, and cortisol? Yeah. We beat up the adrenals a lot as the culprits for adrenal fatigue and for general fatigue and for cortisol issues. But only a third of the cortisol is actually made in the adrenals. It's the fastest responding. So when you get peaks and valleys, it's coming from the adrenals. That's fair. But the brain makes a third of the, of the cortisol because the brain is highly sensitive to inflammation. Why does it make cortisol? To keep the levels of inflammation as low as possible. Otherwise, brain cells die. And that means we die or we lose function. And then fat cells, because, uh, you know, fat cells, when you burn fat, it's actually an inflammatory process. And so it's, I think it's a counter regulation of that so that it doesn't get go out of hand one way or the other. It's also what partly makes them resistant to mm -hmm. it. It's not functioning too well. But the bottom line is adipose tissue, regular white adipose tissue makes cortisol as well. So when, when I approach a cortisol issue, a true cortisol issue, because then there's this, I'm writing a series right now about it, uh, adrenal fatigue how it's not accepted in medicine, how they're saying it's not real. And you have that, I think it's a terrible, terrible optics for that, that debate. And so we talk about this thing. And so when you want to address either the actual cortisol levels or the client's 
profile of looking like adrenal fatigue. I don't care if it's a cortisol issue or just a, a descriptive issue. When they're suffering from that, they're suffering from that, right? Then you can take, you have, now you have different levers you can get in there. You don't have to just slam the adrenals and treat the adrenals, especially if the numbers aren't, you know, looking like it's a, a, a cortisol issue in an acute state. You can, you can start working on the fat. You start to drop insulin, and now that process in the fat will change. You start to drop insulin, the process in, in the brain will stick. It will change because the brain has a very unique enzyme in the brain. It's only in the brain. It's called IDE, insulin degradation enzyme. Talked about this at Systemic, I don't know, five years ago. And what it does is it does two things, mainly two. It does a lot of things, but mainly two things. Two main roles, breakdown insulin or breakdown plaquing in the brain. That's what it can do. Okay, so when insulin is constantly going, what is it going to do? It's going to focus on insulin. Now insulin's got its attention. What builds up? Mm. Plaquing in the brain. We talked about Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, plaquing that happens in the fed state. Got to be in the repair state to activate this enzyme to clear out the insulin and then break down the plaques. Mm. If it's constantly up, it's not happening. It's not happening. It actually affects the autophagy as well. And it looks like autophagy is a, a counter regulation of that one too. So mm -hmm. it's also tightly connected. And we also, we're always in autophagy, okay? People like to say, well, when do I turn it on? Or when did I turn it off? That's another thing I don't like. It's always on. It's about the efficiency. How fast do we get efficient? How, how can we turn, tune that thing up? Because we're always in it. We will recycle about 1.3% of our cells a day, regardless. It's happening, even if we're in a fed state on some level. But the shift happens in the efficiency. It, go, it, it dramatically goes up when we're in a fastest state and the longer we're in the fastest state, peaking at about three days. So how would you measure that efficiency? Would you look at glucose and ketones to kind of do that Dr. Tom C-free ratio? How would you measure that? Yeah, well, the, both of those are fine. You know, we, we have, we're limited because remember, all, the other thing is don't bank everything on the timelines. I made my own timeline because I got frustrated with like the different gurus out there putting out this is what happens at six hours later. All that data comes from several sources. Most of it's from labs, right, on worms and plants. And then there's some on animals. And then there's even fewer on humans. And there's even fewer in studies on humans. So we're extrapolating a lot. So take it, remember that, okay? And so I have a timeline that can happen. It'll happen differently if you're in a metabolic fitness state versus right. on. Someone who's in a fasting rotation like I teach, each fast will get more out of it. It's like going to work out. Will, it, will I benefit from going to work out today? Yes. Will I benefit from just doing one workout this week? Yes. Will I benefit more if I do three or four? Yeah, everyone say, yeah, same thing. It, mm -hmm. and, and each one gets better because you get better through it. When we go through my program, you do a, a fast and there's another one, I tell them, don't expect something out of this fast based on what you did before because you're now different. It's like someone who's never run a 10K right? They run a 10K. That's going to be an ugly experience. Mm -hmm. We can get through it. Now, if they train for six months, and they do a 10K. There's no reason to think they're going to have that same experience. But everyone thinks, oh, I'm, I'm doing a fast. Oh, I don't do a fast because last time I did blah, blah, blah. You know, like, well, then you, you prep and plan. There's four phases of the complete fasting cycle in my mind. And prep and planning is a huge part. You got you to roll into that well. You do that and all those horror stories, I don't see them. It's definitely easier than people think. Your prep and planning phase, is that an insulin-friendly diet before you start extending the fasting window? Is that what you do? Yeah, because I don't know how many times I see online people say, I'm going to do a five-day fast. Who's with me? I'm, I'm having my go-away dinner tonight. 
Well, you want to make this as hard as you can? Yeah. That's how you do it, right? You know, it just not getting people involved, but having a, a blowout dinner before you start a fast, you're just, oh man, you're just going to be a wreck. It's hard. Yeah. If you're still on caffeine when you fast, good luck. That's tough. You know, I know it curbs hunger and stuff like that, but you're not going to get everything out of it you can. And if you're going to stop caffeine, don't do it at the same time. Mm-hmm. Then you're really messed up. Right? Yeah. You want to be at least a week off caffeine before you do, if you do it that way. Yeah. Things like that. Things Makes like that. Sense. So, yeah. so you want to be, you want to plan your eating habits, whole versus processed, insulin friendly across the board, work on your meal, start working in meal timing, depending on where you're at and how aggressive you want to be. And you roll in the exercise. You want to be exercising before, during, and after. So don't start a workout during fasting. You've never done it before. It's not the time to jump into the CrossFit. You're mm-hmm. going to have problems. Correct. That's when you hear things like Rabdo going on because you just slam the system. That like, what the heck is this, right? Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. But, but if you do it right, you can also get an anabolic rebound. Right? They do that in natural bodybuilding. They've been doing that forever where any supplements can help that, but the food is the main source. You eat in a certain way, you roll into it, you have five, three, five-day fast, and you refeed a certain way, and your body just gets that anabolic rebound in men and women. Guys get the vein vascularity pops a little bit, they thicken up, strength goes up. Because, you know, you know as well as I know, everyone's, all the gym guys are afraid of fasting because they're yeah. going to lose muscle. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to break that, though, because they will lose volume. Because what is volume made of? Water. Mm-hmm. Insulin has a big effect on that. Glycogen, that's going right. to trim down, right? Will it recycle some proteins? Yes, but doesn't mean it's coming out of your muscle. Mm-hmm. So they, they get a flat look. But when you refeed, you just got an upgrade. Mm-hmm. You just got an upgrade. You, your muscle quality just went up. Your mm-hmm. glycogen capacity just went up. And so I don't care what it looks like. If I'm getting an upgrade, that's great. You didn't lose any muscle fat. They're, they're not looking at what happens after the fast. They're not looking at the refeeding part. They're just looking at how they look during the fast. They feel flat. They look flat. And they say, I'm losing my benefits. But if they actually see what happens after, like to your point, you get the recycling of protein. You get the human growth hormone benefit during the fast. Then you see the full picture that way. Yeah. And people do the opposite uh, that I just described. They, they'll do a fast and then they'll end the fast with some big pizza and beer. Yeah. That happens a lot. Yeah do that you know or they do both right bing, bing, bing. and that's why i also don't like 24-hour fasts i think they set up for success my data shows that it's a much higher rate of failure because of the way people break the fast as part of it that, that they break their so hours, like when they do dinner to dinner that's 24 hours i promote full day fast so you end dinner for example sunday night at seven you don't eat anything all day monday and you eat again on tuesday either breakfast or lunch or whatever you got it okay but if you're you end dinner and start dinner all you're thinking about is your last meal and your next meal and it just it the upset it drives people nuts and they, they'll cut it short they'll eat bad choices and you do a full day so you think in your mind it's just a day but 7 p.m to 1 p.m over here that's 42 hours mm. and so your one easy day just became 42 hours with two overnight fasts that you just compounded more out of it Makes sense. Yeah. So I, I see that. I, I hear what you're saying there. This has been amazing. A lot of, we talked about a lot, not just the calories in versus calories out. It's really fascinating to hear how the body produces cortisol. On that subject of the, the adrenals, the brain and body fat, what's the hierarchy? You said, of course, the adrenals are probably the first line of defense there. They're going to spike cortisol. And then is it the brain and the fat cells or does it, does it change? How does that work? The adrenals are making cortisol for the body, mostly. Mm-hmm. Brain is protecting the brain. 
and it's always on. It's always working on that. Okay. So it's almost like an independent system. You know, certain things can cross the blood-brain barrier, precursors, and 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 stuff like that. And so there is an influence. But you got to think the brain is like the liver stores glycogen for the body and the muscles for the muscles. The brain is doing it for the brain. Brain first, right? And then the fat cells. It has to do with anyone who has lost and gained fat. You know, like multiple times as an adult, they're going to have a dysregulation of the cortisol from the fat cells. Mm. You know, we just most of the metabolic issues in diabetes and and severe cortisol issues start as a child they're injury i look at them as injuries and they started a long time ago and we just molded it into us that's why it's so hard to really become non-diabetic dropping blood sugar to normal doesn't reverse diabetes that's not a reversal but that's everyone's screaming even natural people are screaming oh reverse his diabetes said no you, you got his blood sugar into a normal range he's still diabetic there's people out there who are diabetic with normal blood sugar and we know that because they get all the same ramifications as a type two who didn't have good blood blood sugar. They've tested a huge main study, tens of thousands of people, high control of blood sugar, diabetic versus not, same outcomes. So then you gotta ask yourself, what's the point? So how do you reverse diabetes? You have to reverse the metabolic response and pathway. They have to have a different response from insulin and from everything else. And you can't, only way we've been showing, you have to have an improvement in beta cell function that makes insulin, and that's in the islet cells in the pancreas. Mm-hmm. You have to have repair. You can't have. You have to get the, the fat out of the liver because that's what the beta cells act on the alpha cells. Alpha cells are in the liver for glucagon. That's how it works. If that pathway doesn't change, your blood sugars can be perfect. You still have the same chance for amputation, blindness, retinopathy, and your life average lifespans drop like twelve to fourteen years, men versus women. That's why it's important to look at the fasting insulin, to your point, and not just the glucose. I mean, there's better tests than that. We just don't use them, right? There, You know how there's a glucose tolerance test? Yeah. Think of the same thing, but every time they test glucose, also test insulin. Mm -hmm. The craft studies. And the craft craft patterns can predict diabetes by like 93% accuracy. Mm. 10 years before it happens. You know if you're on that, but we don't don't use it that way. Because it's a harder test and people, doctors aren't familiar with it. There is uh, something you said in the past, I think you were speaking on stage, I saw you, that all you need to do is lose, what is it, one gram of of sugar? Is it sugar, but it needs to come from the pancreas? Is that right? You're playing my two gram questions. I like to do it at the medical seminars, right? And I'll yeah. say, okay, for a type 2 diabetic to become an overweight type 2 diabetic, to become a normal person, how much weight do they have to lose? And you'll hear... 10% of body weight, 5% of body weight, 30 pounds. Uh, no, 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 no. They have to lose one gram. That's it. If they lose that one gram, they're no longer diabetic. And they all, what's going on? So, but that gram has to come out of the pancreas. The pancreas is what, mm. 70 to 90 grams? It's not big. They had that gram is in one particular area. It's got to come, if it comes out of there, independent of weight loss, a 350 pound diet, type 2 diabetic loses one gram and they're no longer diabetic. No body fat lost. Because mm. that's what messes up the function. That's the injury. There's only one thing that's been shown to get that out. Fasting. Mm. Nothing. No, there's no medications, no surgery. There's no other therapy. It's that's powerful. That's so powerful. If you, if you think you reverse your diabetes and you haven't fasted, chances are you haven't. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Okay? You, you know, that's because, we're, again, we're looking the wrong way. We're looking at glucose when we should be looking at insulin. We're looking at uh, numbers when we should be looking at function. Mm-hmm. Did we change the function? Did what we if change they the pathway? What if they also tested their fasting insulin under five? Then would you say they reversed it? No. Not not even then? 
Yeah, that's a snapshot, right? Uh, that's good. They're on the right path. If you go from out of range to in range, you're on the right path. That'll stop you from getting worse, right? But you're still on that path. You won't get progressively worse, but you're still on that path. Your, your odds of all the bad stuff is still there. So what do they now, do? They, they Well, the fasting. They got to get the fat out of the liver, blood sugar problems. Metabolic problems start in the liver before there are ever pancreas problems. Right. What I mean is, what do they do in terms of how do they verify I've reversed my type 2 diabetes? What test should they do? That craft model. The craft one, okay. You know, and you have to have pre and post. It, the problem is it's a different test. Most doctors don't do it, and it takes two hours, right? You have to sit and get draws. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not easy. It's not like a finger prick and done. Okay. The other one, you can do imaging. There's all okay. sorts of imaging that can, that can see uh, liver fat. And pancreas fat, very, very clear, but they're expensive and they're almost always used for research. Mm-hmm. And then we apply that research to make recommendations that people don't have access to, to find out if they have it. It's just, it's like, I don't get it. You know, same thing with adrenal fatigue. They use a test for acute issues and apply it to a chronic situation. Mm-hmm. That's why they say there's no such thing as adrenal fatigue. Right. Because the cortisol numbers are blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, you're using, you're looking for an acute thing. Remember, it only lasts 45 minutes. What if they're super calm when they come in? You're right. only testing it four times throughout the day. What if they're super calm? Well, or what if the opposite is true? What if they just got an argument with their spouse? Right? It's just, there's a lot of stuff. It's really hard. You can't just take numbers at a, at a face value and say, well, that's good or bad. That, that's a real big problem. But that's, a, that's the backbone of medicine. And research is designed to do that. Because mm-hmm. that's what gets the funding. It's a drug-based model, yeah. double-blind, placebo-controlled. That's a pill model. Try to double-blind, placebo-control a, a birth. You can't. Yeah. It makes obstetrics uh, unscientific, according yeah. to that model. Same thing with open-heart surgery. Go ahead. Give me a placebo-controlled heart surgery. Uh-huh. Not mm-hmm. happening. I'm not signing up, right? Or even more practical, physical therapy, chiropractic, or massage. Mm-hmm. Give a placebo-controlled, double-blind adjustment or massage. Oh, you can't do that? Well, then you're not scientific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's ridiculous. So somebody who's listening and they've been saying, I've reversed my diabetes. They're not sure based off of this conversation unless they do a, a craft test or an, uh, a scan. Are those the only two things they can do to verify or is there something those, else? Those are defin- more definitive. Okay. Things you can do on your own. If you're testing your blood sugar, you just you got to see how you respond. right? If you go back, go back off of a strict diet, like, because assuming they did something to get there, right? They did something to do. Good for you. That's great. Maybe they lost weight. Maybe they went more uh, whole food, ketosis based, so on. Now, you know, when we talk about going back to normal eating, you can't, you know, I don't want you to do that, but eat something more conventional a couple times throughout the day, a couple of days, and see what happens. If you, get a, if you swing back towards the way you were, you still have that response. You still have that pathway going. You're, con- you're managing it with your food, just like someone with a medication to keep the blood sugar down, but the pathway is not better. Meaning if they had a standard American meal, they check their, they have a CGM or a finger prick. Their glucose is 85 before the meal, which is pretty good. They have the meal, standard American meal, which is what they used to eat. And then they check it an hour later and they see it up to like 155, 160. That's a sign they have not reversed their diabetes yet. If you do, if you get that consistently, yeah. Because remember, every, every meal is going to have a different breakdown and stuff like that. So, again, don't just do one test. So, like, if you wake up in the morning and you got a 140, don't think you're diabetic until you've got some consistency. 
same thing. That would make me think the other way. And then you can look at those other things. Is my vitamin D over 60? I want optimally over 80. No, then there's probably still something going on. Because what, what happens in insulin resistance, even before diabetes, the damage happens before the blood sugar changes. Mm-hmm. So by using blood sugar to rate this thing, you're, you're late in the game. What changes is in the transport of glucose in your body from GLUT4, the, the insulin-dependent transport, which is for fat and glycogen. We talked about that. Not free energy use in the cells. That's a transporter. That truck takes the, the glucose into the warehouse, right? 85% of those trucks are gone in, in insulin resistance. So now you got normal amount of cargo coming in, 15% of your trucks, there's a problem. Mm. And the trucks can't get it in, so the boxes build up, and we call that insulin resistance. Mm. Not really resistance. You know, it's a build up of bodies, a capacity issue. And why does it change? Because either it's full or the transporters or something else has broken. Like if you take a, a carton of eggs, 12 eggs, and you try it, it's full. You try to put two more eggs in there, you can't. Does it make it egg resistant? No, it's full. You can't put any more in. That's that's, a, that's one of the main ways to look at it. But the other ways are, are more in the cell, in these transports, the way they get injured. And it's called metabolic memory. It's, it's not well read by a lot of people metabolic memory because we have those changes early on and your body keeps responding even though you're well beyond that point because these changes this is what it looks like i don't like the terminology but it's what it looks like because you you, you don't have many trucks to, to do the work therefore later on it's still a still a problem until you fix and get more trucks or you can reduce the boxes you're still going to only have 15 percent of your natural trucks you're still going to be under the gun and so if you have that normal meal or day of meals or weekend or vacation your, your boxes will, and your glucose will back up. Makes sense. Great analogy. Great, great analogy. This has been an amazing conversation. I think our best one yet out of the three ones we've done. To I share a little. I think we got to go. Hopefully it made sense. You always get me thinking, dude. And I, I would love to see that Canva thing that you talked about. Thank you for that. Uh, I'm going to start incorporating more breakfast <laughs> intentionally eating in the morning just to see what it does for me and then where else can the keto campers go check you out i know you have an amazing facebook page where you just post such great content amazing resources long form posts and you, you do a it's like you could get like a, a book a master class from books in your p- facebook post so share a little bit more where they could find you yeah like my answers here i don't write i can't write my name in under 200 words <laughs> you know? Yeah, you can go to my, my personal page. You can follow that. I have followers there. But I started uh, moving everything into a, a group. And that's I kind of like got the archives in there. It's called Insulin Friendly Fasting Secrets. And it's all things insulin friendly, not just fasting, but also natural eating, whole food eating, ketosis, exercise, metabolic exercise, variable output exercise, just everything that I use in my, basically in, in my life, in my, the best I can, like everyone else. And in my programs, I put in there, there's few hundred posts at least dozens of videos like your our last podcast is in there there's teaching slides i use at the medical conferences there are assets like the diagram and, and the uh, the flowchart of fasting as well as the the, pl- the canva template for uh, planning your own calendar everything i get i put in there so you're welcome to go check it out it's, it's open to everybody you know i mean i post at least once a day in there and usually on my facebook page so that's awesome. a good way you want to get a hold of me you can do it through there 
we'll put that in the notes. Rachel will put that in the notes of the podcast. Um, say the name of the group again, just in case somebody wants to look it up now. Insulin-Friendly Fasting Secrets. Insulin-Friendly Fasting Secrets. So we'll put that down below in the podcast notes. Anywhere else you want them to go check you out? No, that's fine. You can get all my info is on on those, so you just get them there, and they'll they'll find it. Awesome. Dr. Don Klum, thank you again for coming on the show for the third time. You are one of the most brilliant minds out there. I really appreciate the amount of time and energy you've spent researching this information from the books, from the studies, and all the lectures that I've seen you do in person. And I can't wait for round four. Hopefully, we could do it in person at a conference we're at uh, together. So I want to thank you for coming back. I had an amazing time with you today. Oh, thank you for having me. I, I, I think it's fantastic. I love what you do. I am a fan. I watched the the videos and so forth i follow what you're doing we've known each other a while it's, it's just great to see and uh, i think you got one of the messages out there that is really pretty neutral like not swayed by some of the popular stuff goes on you have great roots in what you're doing and i think the base that you've created is going to grow a substantial tree of knowledge from that so commend you for that I hope you enjoyed that amazing, incredible conversation with Dr. Don Klum. Check out his work. We're going to put the link for his Facebook group. We're going to put the link for his website. We're going to put the link for his uh, personal Facebook page. And also that gift, that Canva gift that he gave us, which is that fasting schedule guide. We're going to put all of that in the notes of this podcast. So go check that out. We put it there for you, courtesy of Rachel. Please text this episode to a friend, somebody you believe who could get value from this. Maybe it's somebody you know who's doing the calories in versus calories out approach and they just don't know any better. This could actually help them big time. If you haven't left the show, a rating and review on Apple Podcast as of yet, please take a minute to do so as it really helps the show grow and reach more people, which is what it's all about. If you didn't listen to the previous episodes that Dr. Don Klum was on the Keto Camp podcast, which is episode nine and episode 145, we will drop the links for that down below in the podcast notes. Thank you so much for listening to the entire episode of the Keto Camp podcast. I'll see you on the next one. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.